Well, good morning, friends, and uh, happy Father's Day to all of you who are fathers or those who are wielding influence as fathers in, uh, in your families or around a group of people. It's the, uh, it is one of the most important roles, of course, but also one of the most maligned, that, maligned that of fathers. In fact, I read something a couple years ago, I don't remember where I saw it, that said that if a father is active or if a mother is active in the believing community in the church without a father... Um, the kids may or may not uh, be involved in the church. There's a very small likelihood, in fact, that they will. Uh, but if a father is strongly connected to a believing community and interested in spiritual things, uh, then the kids will also uh, follow suit. And so it just shows you the sort of importance that we as fathers have in the spiritual development of our, our families. And, and I know that uh, many of you, even just having been here four weeks I've seen the sort of influence that you're having. I taught the first through third graders, I think, on Wednesday at our VBS, and uh, and some of the questions were just incredible. I thought these are these are kids who are being shepherded at home. So I'm really I'm grateful for that. Um, and since we're uh, since I'm giving props this morning to our fathers, why don't we also recognize all of those who uh, had a part in our VBS ministry? If you served in any way at all, why don't you stand up so that we can uh, we can recognize you? Uh, yeah, all right. There we go. A lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for that. And under Wendy Kirkpatrick's uh, outstanding leadership, it just seemed like a, a wildly successful week. So encouraged by that. Let's pray and we'll uh, get into the text this morning. Father, will you help us this morning to turn our eyes on Jesus? Will you help us to look full in his wonderful face? Will you help us to, to gain a better understanding of what worship is as we open your word and we lean in and listen to you? And Father, will you speak through me, through your word? Will you uh, apply this to our hearts by your spirit? Will you help us this morning to, again, to have our vision of you expanded and to move uh, into closer into the image of your Son, with greater gratitude for your salvation. Attend to us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. And we're in the middle of a six-week series that I'm calling First Things. And we're looking at some of those, those foundational commitments that a faithful church clings to. So what are some of those things that a faithful church says? These are, these are absolute essentials for us. The first week, we looked at glory, and we said that, that God's glory is the end goal of everything we do. So, so whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. Uh, last week, or a couple weeks ago, we looked at uh, gospel. We said that the gospel is central to all that we do here at Capshaw, which is uh, another way of saying that we believe that, that the gospel is for the believer as well as the unbeliever. So yes, unbelievers need the gospel. It is the the power by which they are converted, but believers need the gospel. It's the fuel by which they are transformed into greater likeness of Christ. So uh, we said that the gospel is not simply the basics of Christianity, but in some ways the very whole of it. In fact, in his commentary on Galatians, Martin Luther said this, the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Now, that's not the way that I would say it. Um, 
I would take a kinder, gentler approach. But I do believe that, that, that the gospel is actually central to everything we do. And so we are, um, we're making sure that it remains central at Capshaw. And this doesn't mean, by the way, doesn't mean that we just preach sort of a basic salvation message every week. Um, what it does mean is that as we exposit, which is another word for explain, as we explain the whole counsel of God, keeping the text in its context, historical, cultural, literary, grammatical context, we're always looking to see how each particular passage, or what scholars call pericope, each particular pericope actually fits in the broad story of redemption of which Jesus is the hero. So yeah, we're, we're going to start working our way soon through 1 Timothy, and, and we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to look at what was going on in the ancient historical context and all of those things, but we're careful to look at each section in light of the big story, again, of which Jesus is the locus, the subject, and the object. So that's what it means to be, to be gospel-centered. Uh, last week, we looked at the third pillar, which was community, and we said when God gets a hold of our hearts and enables us to see His beauty, His glory, His holiness, our brokenness, our need for a Savior. He saves us from our sin and His judgment. He saves us unto good works and into a believing community. So from, unto, and into. Into a believing community, into a church. So the gospel unites us to God. It fuels our spiritual growth. It creates a community into which we belong and the gospel does something else that we're going to look at this morning. It compels us to worship. So that's the pillar we're looking at this morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 7 through 16, but we're going to kind of narrow in on uh, verses 14 through 16. But let me read Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 16. The text reads like this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, that's an important phrase we're going to come back to in a moment. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So this is a, you know, we're, we're kind of, a, you know, parachuting into this, this section. We haven't looked at anything that preceded it, so it's a, it's a little bit confusing. So let me uh, try to explain what's going on here, give you a little bit of the context. Uh, there were some at this, this house church at Rome to whom the sermon known as Hebrews was directed. And a lot of the New Testament letters, we call them the epistles, are indeed letters. This is really more of a sermon. And it was addressed to beleaguered and suffering Christians. And there were some who had been drawn away by what the writer of Hebrews calls strange teaching. Strange teaching. Teaching that promised spiritual strength through ceremonial food. So if you eat these certain foods, they will endear you to God and you'll be strengthened spiritually. They were also saying that 
if you didn't participate in the ritual life of the temple, that then you would lose access to God. And so the bottom line is some of the professing Christians had turned to a false gospel, what really wasn't a gospel at all. And the writer of Hebrews says, look, I want you to know these foods have no benefit to you other than filling your stomach. So they're maybe good for physical strength, but they have no spiritual value to them. They're not, a, they're not endearing you to God by virtue of their consumption. The strength to persevere in the faith, to live, to glorify God, to, to live with joy, to endure suffering, all those things come from the grace of God in Christ, not from any sort of special food that you might eat. He goes on to say that the former sacrifice, which was made at the altar of the old covenant, has been replaced by the sacrifice of Christ who went outside the camp, verse 13, and embraced the reproach that would be an integral part of his sacrifice. And the writer says then to the readers, let us go to him then outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Now, what's the significance here of being inside the camp versus outside the camp? Well, there's actually a dual reference here. There's a dual reference. And the first, the immediate reference is going back to Moses. You remember Moses, he, he, he leaves the people at the base of the camp. He goes up on the top of the mountain and he, he hears a word from God. In fact, he's given these two tablets, the 10 words by God, where God actually, the text tells us, inscribed with his very finger, these commands. So he's, he descends down the mountain and he hears all this going on. He says, hey, what's going on down there? And, and it's not really that the people were engaged in battle. They were, in fact, they were singing and they were celebrating. They were worshiping. And as you may recall, they were worshiping gods that had been made of gold, the golden calves. And so Moses and God have this exchange, you know, so to speak. And then uh, Exodus 33, 7 tells us, now Moses took the tent and pitched it outside the camp, far off from camp. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent, which, again, was outside the camp. Now, the writer of Hebrews, um, being well-schooled well -schooled in the, what we know as the Old Testament, um, is using figurative language that harkens back to the book of Exodus. He's saying, outside the camp is where we meet God. Outside the camp is where we put an end to our self-reliance and our, our personal striving to be good enough. Outside the camp is actually where God's grace is poured out. Now, there's another reference, of course, what I would call an ultimate reference, and that is to the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, Golgotha, the hill on which Jesus was crucified, was outside the gates of Jerusalem, we're told. That old rugged cross that the hymn uh, reminds us of was on a hill far away, right? It was, it was out there. It was far away because Jesus was so despised and hated, he was, he was cast outside the city gates. One New Testament scholar Richard Phillips writes this, outside the gate, Jesus suffered and died. And in that separation, the principle is established for all who would come to God through him. Outside the camp is where we go to find the grace of God, for that is where the cross was raised, where God meets us, meets with us to forgive our sins and to accept us in the righteousness of the Son whom the world despised. So thinking about the writer of Hebrews, here's what he's saying. Inside the camp, represents all those worldly philosophies, all those self-salvation projects, all those ways that we believe we can endear ourselves to God and be saved. That's inside the camp. For us, it's a variety of false gospels, the gospel of moralism, the gospel of works, the prosperity of gospel, the gospel when we could go on and on. Those are represented inside the camp, but outside the camp is where we go to meet God, where God's grace flows. 
again, inside the camp for the Jews in the first century represented um, acceptance or salvation through strange teachings regarding certain foods and temple rituals. And for us, it's a variety of other things, cleaning ourselves up before we get to God. You know, we say, well, like, and I've heard people say this many times over 18 years. Well, I, I, I want to come to God, but I just, I got to get my life in order first. But that's actually not the gospel, is it? Or people say, well, if I could just get rid of this one behavior, if I could start going to church, then I'll come to God. The true gospel, again, here using, continue with this figurative language, is the gospel of faith in Christ alone is found outside the camp. This is where the way to God is permanently redefined. This is where Jesus suffered so that we could be forgiven of any and all sins. He became the once for all sacrifice. And because of that, worship was changed forever. No longer do we as Christians, of course, offer animal sacrifices. Now God desires a different way, something entirely different. Look at verse 15 again. It says, through him... Let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. Because Jesus suffered, verse 12, in order to sanctify a people through his own blood, worship then from that point on must continually be done through him. So here's our first point this morning if you're taking notes. Worship is ultimately a joyful and continual response to God's redemptive provision through Christ. Now, all that means is you can't worship God except through Christ. You can't come by any other means, any other ritual, any other person, any other habit. Worship can only take place through Christ. There is no other system. There's no other approach that God would accept. True worship happens through Christ. Sometimes we'll commend a, a worship leader and we'll say something like, well, you know, you, you really ushered us into the presence of God. I mean, I understand what's being said here. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing to say. But the reality is we don't need a person to lead us into God's presence. What brings us into God's presence is the, the person and work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we come to God through Christ. Now, secondly, the phrase through Christ means that everything done in worship points to Christ and his completed work. So Christian worship is always Christ-centered. It's always Christ-centered. Now, this doesn't mean that we just sort of say Jesus' name over and over again. It doesn't mean, of course, that we worship God at the expense of, of the Trinity or you know, at the expense of the Father or the Holy Spirit. No, it just means that the true worship is always Christ-centered. And nowhere in the Scripture is this more, I think, clear than Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 4, God is presented as this awesome glorious and transcendent creator before whom all beings hide their face. This is how glorious he is, how, how amazing he is. And one of God's angels then issues a challenge to the universe. Who can approach this God? Who can open up the scroll and break its seal? And of course, no one can. No one in heaven or earth was found. And then enters Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. And Jesus doesn't simply approach the throne of this awesome God. He stands in the very center of it. He is one with the living God. And this sparks praise then from every living creature, myriad upon myriad, thousands of thousands, praising him with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Because of his work, Jesus Christ has purchased 
for God a people from every nation, uh, tongue, tribe. And that means that all worship must be centered on him. Now, whenever I say this, there are people who are concerned. They tend to be concerned. Well, what about, again, does this mean that we don't worship God the Father because a lot of our songs are you know, worshiping God and so on? And of course, it, it doesn't mean that, again, it's at the expense of God the Father of the Holy Spirit. But remember, in the, the unfolding of redemptive history, remember in the unfolding of the Bible, the Holy Spirit's always pointing people to Jesus. And, and, and the Father... And even though Christ submits to the Father, the divine plan of the Father, we see in John 5, is that all honor and glory should be given or should be uh, to, to the Son. So everything we sing, do, preach, practice, must be designed to bring, to bring Christ's praise for the glory of the Father. Again, it doesn't mean that every song is, we just say Jesus over and over, but it does mean that every song, sermon, and ordinance must highlight, accentuate, celebrate some part, some aspect of God's redemptive work, again, which centers on Christ. And so what that means is, again, worship, our first point is, is ultimately a continual response to the redemptive work of God in Christ. Now you say, well, I've got a job to do. I have to leave in the morning and go to work. And so how do I continually worship? How do I continually worship God if, if I have other things that I have to attend to? And I think it's a fair question. Well, there's been a tendency among Christians, and, I, and this has really been for centuries, um, to distinguish between the, sec, the secular and the sacred, and to suggest that God is much more glorified, for example, when we pray than when we work. God is much more uh, honored when we sing songs to Him than when we, we do our regular things, when we build buildings or create or whatever. But this is not the case at all, actually, and the, the English Puritans were... Uh, they did a great job of sort of refuting this notion. The world isn't divided into the secular and sacred realms, where worship only takes place in the, sec, the, sec, uh, the uh, sacred realm. For the Christian, everything we do, we do for the glory of God. And that means whether we eat or drink or work or play or build or create or whatever we do, we, we do to worship Him. After all, to worship God is to adore Him, to magnify Him, to treasure Him, in a way that actually changes how we think, how we live, and what we love. And really, it must be said that as human beings, we are actually created to worship. And so the question is never, will we worship? The question is always, what are we going to worship? Our hearts are inclined to treasure something. This is part of being a created being. And so the question is, what are we going to worship? What is it that will be utmost in our affections? What are we going to love the most? What is it that we will treasure the most? Worship is this response to what God has provided. For those who treasure God, though, in what we eat, drink, sing, do, perform, build, we're simply showing forth. We're pointing to the beautiful attributes of this majestic and holy God, which means that, of course, worship is not something we do simply on Sundays. Worship is something we do all the time. We do constantly. It should be a regular part of the Christian life. A few years ago, I was asked to preach at an, uh, an intercollegiate um, worship gathering. It, it was college students. There were thousands of college students from all over, and, and it was a pretty cool thing to be invited. I don't know why I, I invited. A bunch of other people must have bailed, but I, I was invited, and so I showed up, and I thought, this is, I don't know, this is kind of a big deal. So I, I, I put on a suit jacket and, and suit pants, and I thought, you know, I'm going to be in front of all these people. So I get there, and I meet the organizer. And the very first thing he said to me was, are you going to wear that? 
Now, there's no, there's no way that you can interpret this in a positive way, right? I mean, I, there's no way. He said, are you going to wear that? I was so embarrassed at first, I, I wanted to say, well, no, th- these are just my traveling clothes. It's not what I'm going to wear. I got something else I'm going to put on. But I said, well, I said, well this is all I have. Like, wh- why, why do you ask me that? He said, well, we're trying to communicate to students. Uh, we want to let them know that, that worship is not something you get dressed up for. It's not a building you go to. It's not something you add on to a part of your life. It is, in fact, a way of life. It's very much who you are, and, and his earnestness really resonated with me. I took off my jacket, you know, unbuttoned my shirt, a couple buttons, whatever. But I, but I, I really appreciate what he said. Look, we don't want students to think, okay, you got to come to this building and to this worship thing, and you got to look a certain... No, worship is actually a way of life. Worship is, again, a joyful and continual response to God's redemptive provision through Christ. And this should be easy for us to do, shouldn't it? When we think about all that God has done for us, Because God is actually taking us, he's taken us from a place of spiritual death, a place of spiritual isolation, being estranged from him, being set apart from him, being his very enemies, Paul writes in Ephesians, and he has made us to be his very own children. So he's made us to be his own sons and daughters. He has reconciled us to himself through nothing that we can provide, through no good of our own, but simply through faith in what Christ has done. And so when we think about that, that should rouse our emotions, shouldn't it? Worship should be emotional. No, it shouldn't be strictly emotional, but it should be emotional. What does it say about us if we can get excited about a lot of things? Hobbies, our careers, sports, a big game on television. We can get all fired up at that. We're so excited. You know, we can't wait. We're in our seat early because the game's about ready to come on. But the incredible grace of God in Christ, the love that he demonstrated for us at great cost, leaves us unfazed, unmoved, ambivalent. Worship should be emotional. It shouldn't be only emotional. As a church, we want in everything we do to combine serious thought and joyful celebration. We want rousing worship, which moves us deeply, and sermons of depth and accuracy. We want doctrine and doxology. So we want the truth of Scripture, but the truth of Scripture should lead us to worship, not just simply so that we can know more. We want doctrine and doxology. We want precept and passion. We want adoration and action, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Everything we do should be for God's glory and in response to, again, His provision in Christ which means that everything we do is worship. But there's also a corporate aspect to this. Look at verse 15 again. Through him, the writer says, let us, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. So over and over in the book of Hebrews, we see the author imploring believers to continue to gather together. He says, look, don't don't forsake your gathering as some people are doing. I know that some of, some of the people, that your very own brothers and sisters, they're not gathering because of the persecution they're enduring. They're falling away. But he says, don't forsake that. Continue to gather together for mutual encouragement, for edification, but also to collectively and corporately approach God. There's something, that, something unique that happens when God's people gather together. We see this throughout the Scriptures. Throughout redemptive history, we see God God drawing near to his people in a special way when they willingly gather together. And I would love it if we had time to go through and show you some of those ways that God attends to his people in a unique way when they gather together. 
We know that God is everywhere. He is, he is omnipresent. In fact, uh, theologians talk about God's spatial presence and his spiritual presence. Now, when I say spatial, that's not me trying to say special with, with a southern accent. He's got, got spatial presence, right? S-P-A-T-I-A-L, I think, and God's spiritual presence. So, so spatially, it means that God is everywhere all the time at every moment. So you can't go anywhere where God is not. He's spatially present everywhere. But the, but the Bible also talks about God's spiritual presence. In fact, the writer of the Psalms, uh, David says at one point, he says that God is especially close to whom? The brokenhearted. God is especially... Now, now spatially, he's no closer then than he is at any other time. But spiritually, he attends to, in a, in a very unique way, to those who are brokenhearted. And we also know from the scriptures that, that when God's people gather together that God attends to those gatherings in a unique way. When God's people gather together, he, there's, this, there's this precedent established in the Old Testament that God attends to that. And even though all of life is worship, there's something unique about the gatherings. When God visits us, the majesty of his presence demands our praise. Here's our second point. We gather to remember God's faithfulness in Christ and to encourage one another in the character of God, thus fueling our individual worship. So if we think that worship only takes place on Sundays, we're really missing the point. We don't go to church to worship. We gather ourselves together to continue our worship. So we're worshiping God in what we do throughout the week, but we gather together to continue our worship as a people, as a body, as a church. And when we fail to establish that pattern, our hearts can grow cold, or even worse, our hearts can grow independent. Even worse than growing cold, our hearts can grow independent, which is Satan's greatest trap. There was a uh, Presbyterian minister by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse who was active at the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from the, I guess it was about the mid, late 40s through the 60s. And... Um, he had a radio program, and he asked a question on his radio broadcast. He said, what would happen to a city if Satan totally took over? What would happen to a city if Satan totally took over? Now, I don't know, think for a second how you might respond to that. And he said, well, it's actually not what you would think. He said, if Satan took over a city, the bars would be closed, the strip clubs would be closed. He said, people, he said, children in the streets would respond with absolute politeness. There'd be no profanity. People saying, yes, ma'am, and no, sir. And he said, everybody, he said, people everywhere would be in church every Sunday where Christ is not preached. In other words, he said, what really Satan wants is for us to, is for us to believe that we're good enough. See, for us to believe that we're moral people. So what we do when we gather on Sundays is we speak the truth to one another about who we are and who God is. So we gather together and through song and sermon and fellowship and all these things. We remind ourselves of the majesty and the holiness and the beauty of God and also of our brokenness and dependence on Him. You might say it this way, we speak the truth to love to each other. Now I know what that can mean, right? Sometimes people use speak the truth in love as a license to kind of say whatever they want, right? Someone will come up to you and say, you look exhausted today. I'm just speaking the truth to you in love, right? Someone shared with me this week that they had been told that. Or maybe someone says that I had a lady at a previous church who, 
who uh, she worked in the office. She came in the office one time. She was really discouraged. She said, someone just told me, you're too old to be wearing shorts. I'm just speaking the truth to you in love. But that's not, that. I had a guy say to me, uh, this is maybe six or nine months ago. He said, oh, you know what? It really looks like you're losing weight, except in your face. I'm like, <laughs> I don't even know. Like, I wasn't going for the lollipop look. I mean, what, what, I don't, what does that even mean? Like, how am I supposed to receive that? How am I supposed, what am I supposed to do that? People say, well, I'm just speaking the truth in love, right? And that's, that's their excuse to say whatever they want. But what I'm saying is we gather together to speak the truth in love. We remind ourselves of our own brokenness. We remind ourselves of our own sinful tendencies, our helplessness, our hopelessness. And then we shine a spotlight on the majesty and the mercy of the living God. That's what we do to continue our worship. Now, some of you are looking and say, your face, you look like you're putting on weight in your face. Listen to what I'm saying here. Um, so we, we gather together to continue in worship, to continue what we've been doing uh, throughout the week. Now look at verse 15 again, the last part of verse 15. Let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. A sacrifice of praise to God. A sacrifice of praise, it's really, if you're, a, uh, if you're into grammar, it's in the predicate nominative. It, it should better be stated, a sacrifice which consists of praise. In other words, the sacrifice is the praise. And this is the privilege and responsibility of the, of the believing community. Through Jesus sacrifice on the cross and his priestly mediation, uh, meditation at the right hand of God, the community now enjoys unlimited access to God and the unlimited opportunity to offer him their collective praise. Now, what else is that praise? He says, it is the fruit of lips, verse 15, that acknowledge his name. The fruit of lips is a, it's an unusual phrase that, that goes back, it's a quote from Hosea 14 two, which literally refers to the calves of our lips. Again, it's kind of an odd turn of phrase. It's a reference to sacrificial offerings, and our lips are presented here as the altars upon which our hearts give worship to the Lord. Our lips are altars upon which we, verse 15, acknowledge His name. Now, in the Hebrew way of thinking, in, in the Scriptures, the, the, the name, a person's name was very important, very significant. And so a name would really try to capture the very essence of who they were. And we, we, our oldest son, you, you probably met him. Some of you met him. His name is Quinn. But he's actually, his real name, his given name is John Peary Sloan V. I'm, I'm the fourth. He's the fifth. And so Quinn is Latin for fifth. So we call him Quinn to avoid any confusion in our home. Um, but we just continue with a lineage. My, John Peary Sloan I was a, was a medical doctor who was well-known in Middle Tennessee to provide care for people for free, sometimes for, a can, for beans or potatoes or whatever. He was just a real sort of pioneer, you know, many years ago. And so we've kind of continued that legacy. Well, a, a person's name is significant, again, in Hebrew thinking, because it really captures what they are, who they are. And so when we see the names of God in Scripture, they're very important because the names of God reflected actually who God is. You might even go a step further and say that when we acknowledge God's name, we are worshiping God for all that makes him God. What means is, what's so important about our worship is that God receives the glory and honor for who he is and what he has done. And what's not as important then are the forms and the styles of worship. So what's important to worship is that we're acknowledging God. We are speaking the truth about God and who he is. Now, the way that we do that is less important. Here's our third point. 
our greatest delight is not in the music, songs, or even the worship itself, but in the God that our worship exalts. So, so the styles can change, can't they? The styles can change. The volume can go up and down. The number of musicians. The, this morning, it's Father's Day. We had all men up here. The number of mus- the people, the, the musicians, the, the vocalists, all that can change. But what cannot change is we must be accurately reflecting and praising the God of the universe, the God who reveals himself in Scripture in a certain way. So we ask the question, are we acknowledging the name of God? Are we proclaiming God in a way that reflects his own self-revelation? Here's a neglected premise that kind of hit me in the face as I was preparing this sermon. We'll never achieve excellent worship by pursuing excellent worship. Just as Jesus said, he who loses his life finds it. He who gives everything away gains everything. There's a paradox here. One commentator says, you cannot find excellent corporate worship until you stop trying to find excellent corporate worship and pursue God himself. This is the way that we worship God in a way that pleases him is we come together and we pursue God himself. Now, how do we do that? Well, by focusing not so much on us, but on him. Not on our search for God, our feelings, our skills, our abilities, or even our inadequacies, but in focusing on the God who has revealed himself to us in the scripture. So true worship should expand our vision of God as we consider his attributes, his character, and so on. Now, should the music be excellent and skilled? Yeah, it should be. Because after all, we are worshiping the perfect, holy, majestic God. Should there be a variety in creativity? Yes, there should. And we have amazing musicians here. And Pastor Chris leads in such a way to really uh, help us lead with creativity and excellence and beauty. And all those things are wonderful. We also want to make sure, though, that in the middle of this, that our delight, that our joy is in the God we worship, not so much in the worship itself. So again, it means we could have 10 instruments on, on stage or just one or none, 80 people or one, whether music is contemporary or traditional, whether, whether the volume is soft or loud, what's important is, are we reflecting on God and how he has disclosed himself to be in the scriptures and how he has saved us in Jesus Christ? Now, look at verse 16, and we're, we'll wrap this thing up. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There's a fascinating connection the writer makes between, he says, you cannot worship God only, only by your words. You cannot worship God only by your words. Our actions must provide, le- provide legs, we can say, to our verbal praises. Here's our final point. Through adoration and action, believers anticipate God's new creation. And I believe that's a phrase that I read uh, from Cornelius Planting. I was written a great book on sort of God's redemptive activity, but it's, it's not simply through our words. Through our adoration and our action, believers anticipate God's new creation. Here's what that means. When we as believers sing praises to God and we extol His excellencies and we focus on His perfections and we tell of His, His mighty works and incredible salvation, we are anticipating a time when God will be with us and we will be with God and everything that's wrong with this world will be made right. And when we worship God by our actions, we are celebrating his deeds of liberation, his his kingdom that has invaded this world. 
He came to set the captives free, remember. We are announcing by our humble efforts at restoration that we want to do everything we can to advance God's kingdom and bring about his restoration on this earth. In other words, if we just worship God with words, only words, we show the world that we don't really care about suffering and injustice and oppression and racism and grief and despair in this broken world we live in. If, we, if we're all words and no actions, we show a watching world that we don't really care about the suffering going on in the world. In fact, I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote. He said it this way, without action in the world, the adoration of God is empty and hypocritical and degenerates into irresponsible and godless pietism. In other words, we praise God because he is worthy. He is worthy of our adoration, our affection, our exaltation, our worship. But that worship of God culminates in a deep and profound compassion for those who are lost, a mutual pain for those who are hurting, a care and sympathy for those who have been written off, the disenfranchised. Our worship of God compels us to be involved in a hurting world. So, uh, let me close with this. Back to my original question. You know, what, what, is a, what does a worshiping community look like? It looks like this. God's people coming together with great joy and conviction and praising God together for who He is and what He has done for us in Christ and being so moved with gratitude for God's grace and His salvation. Those same people then go out and love their neighbors well. They help the helpless. They serve the needy. They stand up for the written off. And they proclaim the good news about Christ with humility and with urgency. May God help us to do that. Let's pray.